Thank you, and good morning. Hey, it's so good to be with you. Uh, Calvary Vista is a church that my wife and I love. For her, it's her home church. This is where she grew up in the Lord. And for me, you know, this is like my second home because for many years we were missionaries and we were supported by you as a church, and we're very thankful for that. Uh, We love Pastor Rob and Denise. Keep in touch with them. They've been out to serve with us in Colorado a couple times over the last few years, and Rob's been a friend and a mentor for many years. And so just a real honor and a joy for me to be with you this morning. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. That's where we'll be studying this morning. John, chapter 20. And would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, we thank you that you are God who loves us and because you love us, Lord, you want to speak to us, you want to reveal yourself to us. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we hear your Word, Lord, that you would have its effect on our lives. Lord, that it would affect our minds and it would reach down into our hearts. Lord, that it would produce within within us faith. Lord, that you would do a transforming work in our lives. Help us to move from doubt to belief. And Lord, we pray that this morning would be also an equipping time for us as well as we're equipped for how you want to use us in the world. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure exactly how it started or even when it started, all I knew was that at some point I had began to struggle, and this struggle had reached a point that felt like a crisis. I was living in Hungary at the time. Rosemary, my wife, and I had just had our first child. Our son, Nate, was about six months old at this point. I was pastoring a church that we had planted just a few years before that, and things were going really well, at least within the church, right? The church was doing great. People were coming, uh, growing in their faith. Others were coming to faith for the first time in their life, being baptized. I was teaching the Bible twice a week, Sundays and Wednesdays. And yet I found myself in the midst of this, I found myself struggling with feelings of doubt. I began questioning whether the things I was saying in these Bible studies I was teaching, whether it was actually true or whether I actually believed it. I began having doubts about whether God even exists. And up until that point, I had never really struggled to believe. But suddenly, in this moment, my mind began to be plagued with doubt. And I wasn't sure who I could talk to about it. I I felt worried. After all, I I was the pastor, right? Like, who do I talk to? And I knew, though, that I needed to do something. And that experience, uh, it set me out on a journey, a journey which eventually led to me uh, pursuing higher education, enrolling in university, studying Christianity and other religions and the Bible at that level. And as a result of that journey, you know, and here I am years later, and I would say I'm at a place today where I am more confident than I've ever been before in my life that the Bible is trustworthy, that the gospel message of Jesus Christ is true. And I, I want to talk today about this, that maybe some of you have struggled with doubts, and maybe you're here right now, and you have doubts, and maybe nobody else knows except for you. Or maybe you have family members or friends who are struggling with doubts about God or Jesus or about the Bible, and you're wondering, what can I do? Like, how can I help these people? How can I help myself in those areas? But here's what I would tell you. First of all, everyone struggles with doubts sometimes. What matters, though, is what you do with your doubts. And here's what I would say. Rather than being a sign of spiritual collapse, doubts can actually be the sign of a faith that is screaming out for substance and truth. 
And that's why if you respond to your doubts well, they can actually be a catalyst which causes you to seek and to dig and ultimately results in a deeper and more robust faith in the end. You know, a friend recently called me up and said, I don't know what to do. I have a family member who was raised as a Christian, but now he says that he's not sure he believes anymore. Uh, He's got some questions. He's got some doubts. And this friend was asking me, what do I say? Like, how can I help this person that I love? How can I help them move from doubt to belief? And so with that question in mind, that maybe some of you have some form of that question as well. With that question in mind, let's take a look at one of the stories of the most famous doubter in all of history. His name is Doubting Thomas. But here's the thing I want you to know about Doubting Thomas, and we're going to see this in our story today, is that Thomas didn't remain a doubter forever. At one point, Thomas moved from doubt to belief. And I got to be honest, I feel kind of bad for the guy, right? Because he's stuck with this terrible nickname for like all of history, Doubting Thomas. He like had a bad week 2,000 years ago and he can't shake his nickname, right? It's like a guy whose nickname is Stinky because he had a bad day in the eighth grade and now it's like for the rest of his life, he's just called Stinky. Well, that's how it is with Thomas, right? He's like, guys, 2,000 years ago, I had, a, I had a rough week, all right? I believe now. Maybe just call me Tom, like Thomas. It, it would be okay. Um, but as we look at Thomas's story, we're going to see what it took for him to move from doubt to belief and what that means for us and for our lives today. So the title of today's message is From Doubt to to belief. And in this passage, here's what we're going to see. Here's what I like to do at my church. Every message, I like to summarize the message into one statement that you can write down, take with you as you go today. And then we'll use that statement as our outline. We'll break it into parts and use it as our outline to walk through this passage. So when somebody asks you later today, what did they talk about at church? Instead of saying, I have no idea. You can say, well, here's what they said, and you can read them this sentence. So I'd love it if you'd write it down, take this thought with you as you go today. Moving from doubt to belief involves hearing testimony, seeing the evidence, and responding in faith. So one more time, then we'll break it down. Moving from doubt to belief involves hearing testimony, seeing the evidence, and responding in faith. So the first part of the sentence is this. Moving from doubt to belief. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, starting in verse 19, we read this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And we read about these same events, by the way, in the other Gospels as well, because this took place on the evening of Easter Sunday. So on that same day when Jesus rose from the grave, in the evening he met with his disciples, and he showed them, we read here, his wounds, his hands, and his side where he had been stabbed with a spear and pierced through the heart. And it says there that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, which is basically like the understatement of the century, right? They were more than glad. They were ecstatic. They're overjoyed. Their Savior is alive. He's conquered death. But check out what happens in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. 
So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Jesus had been crucified. He died. They stabbed him through the heart and buried him in a grave. Surely this couldn't be true. Surely there must be some other explanation, Thomas thought. And Thomas said, unless I can see him with my own eyes, unless I can touch him with my hands, I will never believe. Now, on the one hand, Thomas wasn't asking for anything more than what the other disciples had already received. They had had the opportunity to see Jesus with their eyes and touch him with their hands. Thomas wanted to have that same experience, that same opportunity for himself. And yet, Thomas then makes this declaration, which seems surprising and sudden, right? Rather than just saying, I want to see him and I want to touch him too, then he goes this one giant step further and says, I will actually never believe unless I get those things. He wasn't willing to believe the testimony of even his very best friends. He spent three years with these people. He's seen that they're trustworthy people and they're all telling him the same thing. Down the line, 11 of them saying the same thing. And if you think about this, it's surprising, right? I mean, he's saying, Peter, I don't believe you when you tell me this. You know, James, I don't believe you. John, I especially don't believe you, right? And if you think about it, right, if you never believed anything unless you saw it with your own eyes or touched it with your own hands, that would certainly exclude a lot of things. We all exercise faith and belief all the time, throughout, throughout our days and, and every day that we live, we exercise faith in one way or another. For example, Thomas himself, he had never seen Moses. He had never seen Abraham. He'd never seen Babylon. He'd never been to Rome. And yet he believed that these things and these places existed. Why? Based on the testimony of others. But here, when it came to Jesus' resurrection, he was unwilling to believe the testimony of even his very best friends. Maybe it's because the stakes were so high. Maybe it's because it just seemed like such an outrageous claim. Maybe he thought it must have been a dream or a hallucination, or maybe they all kind of convinced themselves that this was true, even though it wasn't. And yet, if Jesus really had resurrected, then it really shouldn't be a big inconvenience for him to come back again and meet with the disciples one more time when Thomas was there, right? And so verse 26, it says that eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Place your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So peace be with you, right? This is the common Jewish greeting, shalom. If you go to Israel, this is how people say hello. They say shalom. So Jesus walks in, meets with the disciples, says shalom. And this time, Thomas is there. We're not told where this took place. It might have been in Galilee or it might have been in Jerusalem. But this time, Thomas is there and Jesus speaks to Thomas. He hones his eyes right in on him and specifically says, Thomas, come here. He shows him his hands, invites him to touch the wound in his side. And notice what he says to Thomas in verse 27. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus wanted Thomas to move from doubt to 
belief. And here's what that means. It means that doubt may be a station that you pass through at different times in your life, but it's not meant to be a destination where you remain. There's an interesting line in the book, Life of Pi. It says this, doubt is useful for a while, but eventually we must move on. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. See, doubt is actually an inherent part of having faith. It's not something we need to fear. It's something we need to understand. Doubt is part of faith. Faith, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, is having conviction about things which you cannot see. If you could see it, you wouldn't need faith to believe it. So doubt, in other words, is not how faith ends. Doubt is where trust begins. Doubt isn't where faith ends. Doubt is where trust in God begins. And the Bible makes it very clear. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Those are two different things. Sometimes they get confused, though. But there's a difference. And the Bible makes this clear. Doubt is a struggle to believe, whereas unbelief is a refusal to believe. Doubt is a tension in the story, whereas unbelief is a decision. You see, sincere doubts, you know what they're like? They're really, a sincere doubt is really just an unanswered question. It's where you have a question, you're not sure about the answer, and so you have a doubt. And you know, the word question comes from the Latin word for quest. And what is a quest? A quest is a journey of discovery. It's an adventure that you go on where you're diligently looking for and seeking something. But remember this. The goal of a quest is not to stay on the quest forever. The goal of the quest is to find the thing you're looking for. You know, there are a few ways that people commonly tend to think about or respond to this topic of doubt, right? So ways that people commonly tend to think about doubt and respond to doubt. The first of these is to demonize doubt. Maybe some of you have experienced this at some point in your life, right? Many people demonize doubt, and what they do is, to do this, what they say is, it's not good to ask too many questions, right? Don't ask questions, just believe. And, and just, if you have doubts, just pretend that you don't, right? Like, ignore them, suppress them, it, you know, don't deal with them, just believe, okay? So they'll demonize doubt. The other uh, extreme, the other option is idolizing doubt. That's the other extreme, when people idolize doubt. And I would say nowadays, this is, this is kind of trendy, it's kind of faddish, kind of cool to idolize doubt. Not just deconstructing, right, but the idea that you're going to just stay undecided forever. You're just going to stay on the fence forever. And, you know, people who idolize doubt, what they're doing is they're viewing doubt not as a station that you pass through or a stage that you go through, but rather as the destination that you arrive at and then never leave. But if you look at the Bible and listen to Jesus, you'll notice that neither of these two approaches is acceptable. Doubt is not something that should be demonized, but on the other hand, it's also not something that should be idolized. Instead, the proper way to think about doubt is this— recognizing doubt as an opportunity to grow in authentic and vibrant faith. So recognizing it as an opportunity to grow in authentic and vibrant faith. 
Listen, as Christians, as people of God's word, right, we're not afraid of doubts. We're not afraid of questions because truth, the truth is never afraid of honest questions. If something is true, then we want people to ask questions. We want people to dig in and investigate it and look into it so they can discover and see it for themselves. But another reason why we don't demonize doubt is because the Bible doesn't demonize people who have and express sincere and honest doubts. In Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude, but Jude chapter 1 verse 22, uh, Jude tells us this. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. And here's a passage that I always find incredible. In Matthew chapter 28, the end of the gospel of Matthew, right after Jesus has resurrected, we read that the disciples met with him on a hill in Galilee. And right before he gave them that great commission, you remember when he told them he sent them out to go into all the world and make disciples, you know what happened? It says that they met with Jesus on this mountain in Galilee, and it says in Matthew 28, verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now I want you to think about that. How incredible is that statement? They worshipped him, But some doubted. Here they are looking at him with their eyes. The risen Jesus, he's standing there and they're worshiping him. And even in the midst of seeing him, even in the midst of worshiping him, some of them are still having doubts. And you know what that shows us? It shows us that it is possible to struggle with doubts and still worship Jesus at the same time. Maybe that's where some of you are at today. And I want you to know that. You can still worship Jesus and struggle with doubts at the same time. But here's the thing. If you suppress your doubts, if you just ignore them, if you just pretend that they don't exist or try to kind of uh, brush them away, nothing will be resolved. And at some point in the future, those doubts will resurface. You know, something I always encourage parents in is this. If your kids, or, or you know, let's say you raise your kids in, in the Christian faith or in the church, and your kids start expressing doubts or having questions about Jesus or God or Christianity or the Bible, don't discourage them from asking those questions, even the difficult questions. Don't discourage them from expressing their doubts. And you know what? That's not just true for kids. It's true for anyone you know who has questions or is expressing doubts about Christianity. Take the time to sit with them, take them by the hand, answer their questions, help them find the answers to their questions, tell them why you believe, help them see that there are real answers out there to the questions people have about God and the Bible. And if you don't know where to get those answers, find people who do, because there are so many great resources out there. Just a few years ago, we set out and to do a kind of research project with our church. And what we did, we used our radio program, some online resources to kind of poll people in our local area anonymously. And we asked them to answer this question, kind of fill in this blank. I could never believe in a God who fill in the blank. And so we got several hundred responses, and we turned those responses into a series of messages that we put together. And that's actually this book that we have that Pastor Rob mentioned in the video that we have for sale out there. And what the goal was with that was to say, what are the things that people are really struggling with that are the real barriers that they would say, this is what's preventing me from truly trusting and following Jesus? And you know what was interesting? A lot of the responses we got were from people who would say, I'm not a Christian and here's why. But then we also got a ton of responses from people who said, I am a Christian, 
but I, I'm really struggling with this question, right? Like this question bugs me so much that it's causing me to question my faith altogether. And, you know, if that's where you're at, I would recommend that resource to you. But you know what else? There, there's a lot of great resources out there on these topics. And so I would just tell you this. If you don't know where to get the answers, they're out there, and you can seek help from people who do. But the point is, we don't want to discourage people from asking questions. Rather, we encourage people to keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking because we believe that deeper faith calls out to us from the other side of our sincere questions and that God will be found by those who sincerely seek him. So just as Jesus told Thomas, the goal is not to remain perpetually in a place of doubt, but to move from doubt to belief. So how did that happen in Thomas's life? That brings us to the next part of our sentence. Moving from doubt to belief involves, first of all, hearing testimony, hearing testimony. Now, the one thing I really like about Thomas is that he's honest enough to admit that he doesn't believe. He's not pretending. He's not putting up a front. And yet, look at what Jesus says to him in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed only because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, Thomas was in a unique position in the sense that he lived at a time and a place where Jesus was physically present after his resurrection. But what if Thomas had not had the opportunity to see Jesus and touch his wounds? Because for the majority of people throughout history, including you and I today, that's the situation we're in. If people had taken the same approach that Thomas took, then Christianity would have died out within one generation, right? Because nobody would have been able to see him or touch him. But here's what's interesting. In 1st and 2nd Peter, the Apostle Peter, he writes to the Christians who were spread out all over the Roman Empire. By that time, there were multitudes of Christians spread out all over the world. And so Peter writes to these believers, many of whom are experiencing persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And in those letters, 1st and 2nd Peter, he says two really important things. The first of them is this. First, he says in 1st Peter chapter 1, he says, Even though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. But the other thing that Peter said, which was also important, he said that he says in Second Peter, he says, you know what? These things I'm telling you about Jesus, they really are true, and I know they're true because I was there and I saw it myself. In other words, he's saying, this is my testimony. I'm giving you my testimony. And you know, Christianity spread throughout the world based on the testimony of those who had seen and touched Jesus. But for most people who believed, And even for us today, moving from doubt to belief, it involves hearing testimony. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read about how on one occasion, over 500 people saw Jesus at one time after his resurrection. And those people who saw Jesus, they were persecuted in in an attempt to get them to stop talking about it, right? But as we read like in Acts chapter 4, for example, the Christians said, no, We cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard. In the book of Romans, chapter 10, we're told that faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. We're told that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him 
unless they've heard of him. And how can they hear of him unless somebody tells them? In other words, moving from doubt to belief, it involves hearing testimony. And here in John's gospel, John is saying, this is my firsthand testimony. I was there. I saw it all. When Jesus sent his disciples out to carry out his mission, he told them, I'm sending you out as witnesses. Think about it. What does a witness do, like in a a courtroom hearing? A witness gives their testimony about the things they've seen and heard. They don't talk about how they think or feel or their opinion. They testify as to what they've seen or heard. And so Jesus was telling his disciples, go into the world and tell everyone about the things that you have seen and heard. And here's what's interesting. Each and every person, each and every one of you who has put your faith in Jesus, you have a testimony as well. You have a story to to tell, a story to share of how you came to trust in Jesus. You know what that story is. You also have stories of prayers that God has answered for you. You have stories of how God has provided for your needs. You have stories about how you personally wrestled through times of doubt and came out on the other side, on the side of believing and with stronger faith. And you know what? There are other people out there who need to hear those stories. Your testimony might help somebody else move from doubt to belief. So don't keep it to yourself. The next thing in this sentence, right? We said moving from doubt to belief, it involves, first of all, hearing testimony, but secondly, it involves seeing the evidence. Here's what's so interesting about this story. Thomas wanted more evidence. That's what he wanted. And so Jesus responded to Thomas's request and gave him more evidence so that he might believe. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Peter says this statement, which I think is really important for us to, to look at. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith. Or some translations say, add to your faith. He says, virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. In other words, Peter is encouraging us to not just have faith, But he's saying, I want you to add knowledge to your faith. I want you to confirm your faith by pursuing knowledge. And this is important because it means that Christianity and and the Bible, for example, they don't tell us, ignore the facts, bury your head in the sand, don't listen to science, don't read history, just believe. Just the opposite. They say just the opposite. The Bible encourages us, pursue knowledge. Look at the evidence. Verify that what the Bible says is actually true. You know, there's a man named Lee Strobel. He worked as an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He had a journalism degree from University of Missouri and a degree in law from Yale. And his life was going pretty well until his wife decided to become a Christian and start going to church. And the reason that was a problem was because Lee did not believe in God. He was a professing atheist. And so he set out to prove that to his wife that Christianity was not true and that it could be disproven historically, which I'm sure she loved, right? And so his plan was this. He said he he was a journalist and a lawyer. So his plan was to gather all his findings, all this evidence, and publish them in a book that would be a resource for other people to use who wanted to claim that, who wanted evidence that the claims of Christianity were false. So Lee did end up writing a book, but the book he wrote was very different than the book he originally planned to write. Because as he did his research, looked into the evidence, 
first the existence, first the evidence for the existence of God, and then the evidence, the historical evidence for Jesus and Christianity, he ended up actually coming to believe that the Christians were right. And he ended up becoming a Christian himself. In the book he wrote, maybe some of you have heard of it, it's called The Case for Christ. It sold millions and millions of copies all over the world. But here's the thing. After hearing testimony, after seeing the evidence, there's still one more crucial step in the process of moving from doubt to belief. And that brings us to the final part of our sentence, right? So it's moving from doubt to belief. It involves hearing testimony, seeing the evidence, and finally, responding in faith. Responding in faith. We read in verse 28 that when Thomas saw Jesus, he immediately responded in faith. Verse 28, Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Not only is Thomas no longer doubting that Jesus is risen, he's taking one very big and very important step further. Thomas declares that Jesus is his Lord and that Jesus is God. This is interesting because all Thomas had seen really was just that Jesus was resurrected. It took a step of faith for Thomas to declare that Jesus was his Lord and his God. And notice, he makes it personal, doesn't he? He says, you are my Lord. You are my God. I will worship you and I will follow you. And here's the thing I love about Thomas. Once he saw the evidence, he didn't hesitate. He didn't wait any longer. He immediately responded in faith. You see, once you have heard the testimony about Jesus, once you've seen the evidence for Jesus, there comes a point when you have to actually take the step of trusting in Jesus and surrendering yourself to Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. There comes a point where you have to get off the fence and put down your yes and decide to trust in and follow Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus told Thomas? He said to him in verse 27, Do not disbelieve, but believe. What that means is that there is a way, there is a sense in which believing is a choice that you have to make. The Gospel of John begins with John telling us that Jesus is God in the opening verses of the book. And now here at the end of the book, after telling us about all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did, now we see Thomas, this man who once doubted, now declaring that Jesus is God. And look at what John says next in verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's telling us, look, full disclosure, cards on the table. I'm going to be completely honest with you. My goal, my purpose in telling you all these things about Jesus is so that you too would move from doubt to belief. He would say, my hope, my prayer for you is that you too would take that step of believing in Jesus so that you can have life, an abundant life here and now, an eternal life that is to come. So the big question is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? How does believing in Jesus actually change your life and connect you to God? Well, you can think about it like this. Imagine if you were standing on a steep mountainside. 
and you began to slip and you began to slide down that mountainside. And the only thing that could stop you from sliding down that mountain to your death was a branch that was sticking out of the side of the hill right next to you. Now, this branch, just to tell you, this branch is strong enough to support your weight. But just knowing that, in theory, that this branch is strong enough to hold you, that isn't going to save you. In order for the branch to save you, you have to reach out and take hold of it. But let's say, as you're sliding down this hill, in that moment when you began to slip and fall down this hill, you look at this branch and... As you look at it, you say, you know what? I don't have a lot of faith in that branch. I'm not sure that that branch can actually support my weight. In other words, you've got some doubts about that branch. You don't have a lot of faith in the ability of that branch to save you. But if that's the case, and you still reach out and hold on to it anyway, as a result, you will be saved. Because it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. If you have a lot of faith in a weak branch, it won't help you. But if the branch is strong and you grab onto it, even if your faith is weak, the branch will save you. Now, in the same way, you can take hold of Jesus and trust in him today, even if your faith is weak, even if your faith is riddled with doubts. And maybe that's where some of you are today. You say, you know what? My faith, it's got a lot of doubts. It's, it's not very strong. Well, you know what? Even if your faith is weak, even if it's riddled with doubts, you can take hold of him today because he is mighty to save. He is trustworthy. And you can entrust all of your life to him. And as you walk with him, you know what will happen? You will learn. Your faith will grow. You will grow in trust for him. You'll grow. You'll add knowledge and virtue to your faith, and you'll get stronger. But you can take hold of him even today, even now. And my encouragement for you today is this. In every area of your life, I want to encourage you to respond like Thomas did. Respond in faith and say to Jesus from your heart, You are my Lord, and you are my God. I entrust all of my life to you. Friends, moving from doubt to belief, it involves hearing testimony, seeing the evidence, and responding in faith.